0: Hey, everybody. I am here today with Brad Casper, the CEO and co-founder of Heart & Soul. Brad, so good to have you on the show. Thanks for coming. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Lance. Now, I think that uh, you take the cake for the most credentialed agency owner that we've had on here. Uh, out of all the coaches at Asian History Hacker, I feel like I'm lucky to get to interview you because you just got such a wide range of experience from the client side, right? Like you've, you've worked on the client side, been Probably a great client sometimes, probably a not as great client sometimes, like we've all done. Um, but you know that side pretty intimately and you've got a couple agency startups as you've done and scaled pretty successfully. So yeah, I just wanted to jump in and could you give us a quick rundown of the career trajectory that you've, you've gone through to get to where you are today?
1: Well, thank you. Appreciate that, Lance. And you're right. I've been on the client side, and I maybe was a bad client at times. So maybe I'm getting my, my due now as an agency co-founder. But uh, before I started Heart and Soul in October of 2020 with my partner Matt Moore, um, you know my my career trajectory coming out of Virginia Tech. I actually worked for General Electric uh, in finance for a few years. But I said, God, this is really boring. Uh, I don't want to do this. And I jumped to Procter & Gamble. Uh, People in Cincinnati used to call it Procter & God because it was a big-ass employer and um, and certainly one of the bell cows when it comes to leadership, marketing, and advertising development. You know, I think like a lot of people who go to P&G, you think, okay, how's this going to look on my resume? It's probably going to look pretty good. And maybe we'll stay three, five years. Well, in my case, I stayed 16 and a half years, nine and a half years of which were in Asia. And then uh, my final job at P&G was a vice president uh, of a global strategy and innovation group in a $10 billion business unit. And I said, wow, this has been a pretty good journey. Well, I I got an opportunity to become president uh, in Princeton, New Jersey of another consumer goods company, called Church and Dwight. Um, Many people don't recognize the corporate name there, but they recognize the brands like Arm & Hammer and Trojan and First Response Pregnancy Kits and Arid Deodorant and a couple of these other brands that were a part of my portfolio. And that turned out to be a great little run for three years, but then I got recruited to become the CEO of Dial Corporation, which by then had been acquired in 2004, Uh, by Henkel, a German multinational, also in the consumer goods space. And I come in as their first CEO after the acquisition in 05. And I did that for five and a half years. I then went on to do some private equity flips. And I also was president of the Phoenix Suns basketball team. So I've had a very, um, at times chaotic, but nonlinear career progression (laughs) I'm, I'm grateful, of course, for every turn left and right that I took, and I look back, and it's, it's made me a different person maybe than the one I was, but I, I hope um, many people would say that I'm a better person as a result of some of those adversities and some of those left and right-hand turns, um, but in 2016, I joined another agency here in the greater Phoenix area, uh, helped scale that pretty significantly, and it was my first time not being on the client side, but frankly, being on the agency side. But I really figured that having worked with some of the best advertising agencies in the world during my career, that maybe I could apply what I've learned from the client and make agencies better uh, and more, frankly, better meet their uh, emerging needs. And I think that was part of the success that I had at the other agency. And it's part of the reason we formed Heart and Soul two years ago during the pandemic, we think of ourselves as a pretty modern strategy and creative agency that provides a superior value proposition to to clients. So I'll pause right there, Lance, and and let you uh, redirect or build.
0: Man, there's a lot of angles to take. Uh, And one of the first things that comes to mind is, you know, you've gotten to work in a phenomenal advertising agency that scaled really well, a great one now that's growing like you said, on the client side, what, from a client's perspective, when you were the client, what made a great agency? What made a great relationship with your agency? Because I think sometimes as agency owners, we can get focused in on our world. Like here's what a good client looks like. And here's what a good experience as an agency owner looks like. But what, what is the client looking for, right? What is their really stellar world-class agency experience?
1: You know, during the majority of my career, on the client side, um, on the one hand, of course, you know I was hiring for for creativity, uh, but I needed that creativity to be anchored in strategy. I needed it to be anchored in insights, and more times than not, I needed them to be, frankly, faster than what they often were, and that was really one of the pain points um, when I started uh, at another agency in 2016. I looked at some of the key dissatisfiers that I had with agencies in my career. And I said, I think we have an opportunity to overcome that. The first was value for money. I felt like, boy, I spent a lot of money on agencies, big holding company agencies. And sometimes, God, we're paying for months and months and months and months and months. And you wonder, where are the results? Why has it taken us this long, A, to get to a creative brief? Why did it take us so long to go from a creative brief to the first round of storyboards and a final approved storyboard, et cetera? And so I think one of the dimensions that I felt I was dissatisfied as a client that I wanted to build into a new uh, agency would be speed to market. Uh, How do we make an impact In the first 30 days, that makes that client say, Jesus, how did I get by with what I've had in the past? Uh, And that may be some form of an output or an outcome, but at a minimum in that first 30 days, seeing an an amazing amount of passion and enthusiasm and people really starting to step into my shoes as a client, uh, that was something I used to love when people would do it. I just wish they did it faster. So that's one of the uh, things that I think we uh, tried to overcome. And a lot of agencies, I mean, they have beautiful offices. They have a lot of fixed overhead in some cases. And we said in October of 2020, Jesus, um, (laughs) pandemic, there's no use for us to have an office, at least at this point in time. And so we created a completely virtual agency. We didn't even have an office for our first year. And we didn't miss it a bit. Uh, we've had workarounds that both in terms of process and in terms of, well, I'll call a social assimilation as we brought on new employees and new clients. We didn't let Zoom or Microsoft Teams get in the way of us forming tight relationships. So, again, as a client, what I wanted, I wanted to see my agency as an extension of my team, a seamless um, and, and committed, you know, extension of my team. And so once, once again, that's a little bit of heart and soul secret sauce, uh, demonstrate that we can act. And and several of our clients have smaller marketing teams than I did at P and G and church and Dwight and dial. And so that really allows us to feel like, man, it's a nice tight integration. So those are a couple of things that as a, as a client I demanded or, or would have liked to have and now I have an opportunity to provide those to my agent or at, at my agency for our clients.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and I think that value and speed are pretty closely really related. Because you know, if you take a long time to do a wonderful thing, sure, it's a wonderful thing. But could we have done three wonderful things in that same time? Uh, right? Could we have just well increased said. a little bit of our output, and then the value it's it's just significantly more impactful. Yes. What about the flip side, right? So you you mentioned uh, that you probably were a great client at times, probably not a great client at times. Yeah. What are some of the struggles with clients, both you know it on the agency side and on the client side of times where you can reflect and say, well, I probably wasn't a great client. Maybe it only became clear when you became, when you were dealing with clients. But um, yeah, what's, what's some experiences with that?
1: I remember uh, it's when I was CEO of Dial. I had to have you know my EVP of our agency come in from Chicago to Scottsdale. Sometimes bring their CFO or uh, because I think sometimes as clients we just get so wrapped up in our own world of God. We've got volume pressure. We've got supply chain issues, manufacturing issues. Uh, if you're publicly traded, of course you've got investor and shareholder issues. And you forget that the agency partners that you have have their own needs, their own wants, their own cadence, and their own financial deliverables. And so sometimes I think as a client, I turned a blind eye to how they were making money because I was too busy worried about how I was making money. And again, when you sometimes look at it through the lens of, but damn it, it's taking you so freaking long to go from this insight to this deliverable and on air, six months, nine months. That's what also frustrated me that I had to pay for all that time and and those monthly retainers when it took us seven or eight months to get something that we all aligned around earlier in the year, finally to market. And, And that is, I think... But again, if, you, if, you, if I think about when I was my worst self as a client, it was probably that insensitivity to what they were juggling and how my own team may have been impacting their efficiency and their own effectiveness because sure. of indecisiveness and things like that. So um, I, think it's, I think that's what I love so much now about being on the agency side is that I can try to make sure we don't stick our finger into those light sockets that yeah. I used to react to and hopefully have enough of a relationship with my client that I can make some suggestions to them. Hey, when I was in your shoes, I did this. Have you tried that? And, and I think it just gives me a little level of credibility that yeah. I may not have otherwise had, had
0: I not already sat in their shoes. Yeah. I think that you're at the ultimate empathy point, right? Because you can- yeah you can relate with both sides. You know what uh, the annoying activist shareholder who wants you to change this thing. Like, you know what that experience is and you know what it is to have to keep the lights on for great account executives or great strategic guys that are gals that are just, we're not in a place we don't have as much for them to do right now. Or we are transitioning or they're having a tough time. So yeah, I imagine that's a big, big element. Now, I wanted to zoom out for a second because we've had different categories of um, agencies on the show. Some productized agencies that serve like the SMB market, um, You know, folks that do big brands and they are in a specific vertical, but you guys are pretty vertical independent. And uh, correct, is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair, and again, when you're starting out, almost any client looks like a yeah. good client as long yeah, yeah. as they're willing to pay you. Yeah. Um, but I think our sweet spots, Uh, there's probably four to five of them. One is is consumer packaged goods. And and I'm not the only member of our team that comes with that background. So we try to make sure that people understand that we have an expertise in consumer packaged goods, uh, either on the client side or on the agency side. The second area, um, and of course, during COVID, it wasn't much of a hotbed, but it became one afterwards, travel, tourism, and hospitality. We're very proud of that. And of course, that market has taken off everything from hotels and restaurants to conventions and uh, economic development. Uh, So that is kind of a second area. We didn't have this initially on our radar screen, but about a year ago, an education, a for-profit education company that makes products for the education sector reached out to us. And we've done some amazing work in this area. And of course it fuels our passion because we learn that COVID had such a detrimental impact on learning, social emotional learning and distance learning. Now the test scores of kids who spent one or two years kind of working uh, and learning remotely, their their English and their math scores are suffering. And so to be that close to this education sector, uh, I think has really been a, a, a blessing for us and one that our team gets very passionate about. Living out in Arizona, which is among the fastest-growing states in the country, if not the fastest, home-building, master plan community, and real estate development is smoking hot. Now, the downside of that is it's so hot that it fuels higher inflation for people who have chosen right. to live out here. But that's become a real sweet spot for us. And um, we have – And when your brand name is called Heart & Soul – Um, you try to be about kindness, you try to be about empathy and we're working towards an RFP. I'll call it, it's not really an RFP. It's, it's more of a creative collaboration with uh, a health uh, agency uh, on suicide prevention. It's something that we're really, really passionate about. And little did we know that more than 45% of our employees have had a family member, a friend or, you know, one degree of separation away from either a suicide or a suicide attempt. Wow. So uh, our heart beats a little harder when we think about how can we make creative uh, solutions that can change the way people live, work and play. And in this case, maybe even save a life.
0: Mm. Yeah, it, it's a pretty big spectrum, right? Because you have folks that uh, you help us brush our teeth, you help us yeah. live at home and help us stay alive in that home. It, it's that's powerful, I think yeah. It's a, a, a big spectrum and a real, real neat one. Yeah. So if you're, you know, for productized marketing, I think people have yeah. a pretty good view. I, it, say you're a video production company. Somebody approaches uh-huh. you, or you approach clients, say I'd like to help you do a video. You guys work as an agency of record, so just can you explain a little bit about what um, what the uh, client at your agency experiences, right? And you know, you start off. I don't know. Do you guys prospect a lot, or how does business development work? would be a great first question. Yeah,
1: you know, let me start with business development. And and I think uh, we don't do any outbound right now, advertising or whatever. It's all been inbound and organic, either through word of mouth referrals. If, if there is any outbound, it tends to be from me reaching back out to people who maybe used to be my VP or marketing director yeah. or something like that. And now they're in a position as SVP, EVP, president or CEO. And so some of our clients have come in through that familiarization, um, and I, I, I'd like to think that we've earned the business that it hasn't simply been a pay it forward type of thing because they liked working with me in the past. Um, but I think our, you know, in our very first year as an agency in the state of Arizona. Um, We couldn't compete for any awards in 2020 because we didn't start until October. We couldn't compete for any awards in 2021 because we were literally getting our first kind of trip around the sun and having to develop work and see that the work that we develop works. Well, in March of 2022, much to our chagrin, we became the most decorated agency in the state of Arizona, surpassing our previous agency which is pretty crazy. And I think we won something like in March, we won something like 25 awards. Oh, wow. uh, and then they advanced to a regional award and we won another nine there. And then we won two national awards, one for challenger brand agencies. And we love that because we see ourselves as challenger brands. And and so um, I know I'm getting a little off track here, Lance, but the new business uh, development is is is. Largely organic. A lot of it is affiliations with with me. And then secondarily, now one of our VPs uh, who's done some great work at previous agencies, his tribe is starting to follow him. Yeah. And so we're getting beer accounts. We're getting transportation accounts. We're getting theme parks. So it's pretty exciting to see the momentum that's growing and it's not all because of people I know, but people we've hired and they yeah.
0: know. Oh man, that's exciting. And also, I, you, know, you mentioned that you're hoping it wasn't just a pay it forward thing. And I have a really tough time just with some of the clients we've had. They're great clients. I think they like working with us, but I imagine they chose you guys because they believed you could help their brand, Right. It's, I'd it's like, like to think so. The dollars I'd are like hard spent. So. They're pretty, they got a lot of objectives to hit. And I, I feel like to have a new agency, you know, not just a side project or something, they believed right. something there, right? Like they saw yeah. something.
1: Yeah, I think in uh, our our largest clients, our AOR clients, and, and you know, when we got to that point where they knew they wanted us and we wanted them and it looked like it was gonna be a productive relationship, you know, we negotiate a, a an annual contract that's severable by either cli- client or agency. And I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, there are a couple clients that we've had in our first year that we just didn't feel like we're completely respecting our team. And And when we would talk as a team, particularly when you've got a small agency and you call yourself heart and soul, you want to be loved and respected. And if you feel like your client isn't doing yeah. that, you know, I, I had to speak to a couple executives and it didn't look like the relationship was going to be improved. So we fired the client. Yeah, We just walked away from it. So probably about two-thirds of our income come from AOR and about a third, therefore, from projects. The projects can be anything from brand identity and creative strategy and purpose, mission, vision, values, et cetera. But what's nice is after we've done that work, the vast majority have said, hey, there's a follow-on project. Can you do yeah. this and this and this and this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, we started to hunker down in June or July when the, the winds of recession started blowing in everybody's face. And we thought, God, this could be a really crappy time for agencies. Yeah. And we have found the exact opposite to be the case. But I'd love to think that people say, okay, we're going to have a limited amount of marketing dollars. Let's go with an agency that in and of itself is agile, is good value for money. And they have members of their team who've been on in our seats before as clients and they really understand that it, we may not have as big a budget, but we've got to make sure that budget is spent as efficiently and as effectively as possible. And so I do feel like there's another case where, again, maybe not so much pay it forward, but hey, if we're going to pay it at all, let's pay it with someone who knows What we need and has been there and in the trenches, um, maybe first as our leader and now as our partner.
0: And I think that there's uh, something we've experienced is if you have some big three letter agencies, really great agencies that are very large, very very strong um, track record. But sometimes these smaller clients are just that to them, right? They're they're a smaller client, and and you kind of feel it, right? When when you're the small account. You don't. I, we never feel like a small account ourselves, but you right. can tell when your legal counsel or your accountant or whoever it, you're the small client, right? And I feel like sometimes with the boutique agency, right, like Carton and Soul or someone, yeah, you go, ah, we're important to them, right? This yeah. is this is a meaningful relationship to them, and they they might fire us if we don't get our act together, but they they don't want to. It'd hurt, right? Like it's not their first choice, right. um, and I And I think sometimes that's. During the recession, kind of, it, it you look at we're gonna pull back on places where we're not getting the value, but it just seems like a stronger value prop when you go, yeah, we're in it with you guys. Let's figure out how to make it work. Versus, I know
1: we're one of two agencies left for this um, uh, craft brewery uh, that's owned by Anheuser Busch, and I, I made the point to them the other day as we sat down with them. First of all, I think between the two or three agencies that were left in the running, only heart and soul had both founders show up. Um, yeah. <laughs> for, not a, it wasn't going to be a big account, and it may not even be an AOR account, although I think it'll likely become. Um, again, that's our opportunity to impress upon them. You are really important to us. Yeah. Can you be yeah. absolutely sure if, if you're um, partnering with an agency five or ten times our size that you're important to them? So I completely agree with your point of view, Lance. I do think um, that younger, smaller agencies, it's not just their agility, but to make sure that their brain power is really being applied to its clients and that we're not just administrators. Man, I'm the chief strategy officer. I'm the chief client officer. And my partner, Matt, is the chief creative officer, the president and he'll be the guy who's helping to produce the content that they so richly deserve. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and I think that there's a level of, um, hard to put a price tag on value of saying, Mm. hey, we've got people with rich experience, and really like they might not buy you because they worked with you in the past, but Mm. I think that when you bring a track record and you bring a team that has some great experience in, in these industries, it, it just seems like a no brainer for them where they say, ah, oh, we want to work with these people, right? Like, yeah. Um, so, going on, business development is mostly inbound organic. And yeah. then, what does the RFP process look like, right? Like, there's some folks that sell all via Zoom. They say, hey, we're going to, we meet here, or it's structured. Sometimes it's a structured RFP. Sometimes it's saying, let's, let's spitball ideas. What does it usually look like for heart and soul?
1: You know, over our nearly two years, um, I think in the first year, Um, I bet we won about 60 or 70% of the RFPs we went after. And, and I think that's a really high win rate. I would say our win rate in our second year, first of all, we haven't done that many. And our win rate is probably still around that 50% level. I've talked to other agency heads who either don't do RFPs anymore because their odds of winning, they feel like are 10 or 25%. And that's just not a good use of their time and talent. We have found the opposite. Now, we don't go into an RFP unless it meets a few criteria. One, it's an industry we really feel like we can make a difference in. Two, um, do we know someone on the side who's issuing the RFP? Now, if you're getting into a government RFP or a quasi-governmental, you may or may not know the person. Um, But you may still be able to impress upon them through their LinkedIn network like, oh wow, okay. They run in the same circle as several of the people that are in mine. So maybe there's a kind of a tangential advantage because yeah. there's so many shared um contacts, if you will. Um, then we have to make sure that the the squeeze is, you know, the juice is gonna be worth the squeeze. Are we gonna yeah. spend this much too much time for too little juice? Um but I, I will admit though we also look at it from the standpoint of what's the case study that might be able to come out of this. Yeah. How can we leverage this for something that's bigger or, or, or maybe even more significant? So there have been a couple that we've gone after and a couple that we've won knowing that this itself may or may not allow us to do the great work we want to do, but boy, is it going to help us check a box that we otherwise don't have checked. Uh, but, but you know that process, um, and, and we're still. I would say there's a couple that we're still waiting for feedback on. We we think within the next week we'll win two RFPS that we've been involved in, um, and and that will. And each of them has their own process. Sometimes they're run by a search consultants okay. that. Bring in five or six agencies. All of them have been vetted, and they think any one of the six could be best. You know, if the client is really looking for more strategy and creative, Heart and Soul may be great here. If they're really, really looking for a media buying agency, Heart and Soul may not be, uh, you yeah, uh, know, the number sense. one choice. So, um, again, the, the you know, we try to set aside a budget. Um, at my other agency, it wouldn't be un common for us to spend you know, six figures, $100,000 going after a piece of business. And we did so for monster ones. And God, we spent a ton of money and brought in all sorts of freelancers and went balls to the wall for that. Only then that they didn't not only not hire us, they didn't fulfill the promise of the RFP. They oh, hired no one. Man. And nothing God. worse than um, going through a process and... And say, well, we've decided to go in a different direction, or we defunded it, or the budget did and 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 those are nightmares. That was something that we really learned from. Make sure that the person who's running the process has the decision authority and the budget already approved before you enter it. Um, So we've learned a few hard knocks along the way.
0: Yeah, that's, that does sting. And so for the RFP process, you know, again, the productized agencies, it's a little more like, here's what we do. Do you guys want this thing? And um, from what I understand, I've, I've actually, our agency, we've never done an RFP. So if you okay. were saying, here's what you guys do for an RFP, is it generally some spec work where they say, here's the creative goal? Here's yeah. a brand, here's some kind of vision. What does an RFP even look like?
1: Good, good question, and it can vary by would-be client. I think increasingly, clients who are running RFP processes either because the um, headhunter agency person is saying, "Listen, there, there's a there's language called ditch the pitch, mm. um, which means don't make an agency, do spec creative, yeah. spec research, spend." Yeah fifty hundred thousand dollars, not to mention the hours that yep. they'll apply and maybe even bring in some additional contractors to help them respond. That out of pocket cost, even if you're one of five or one of four, there's there's still a probability that on, yeah. that's throwaway. Yep. So we I think we're encouraged that both the ANA and the 4As are having conversations at the industry association level to try to move away from those kind of practices where RFPs require an excruciating amount of creative intelligence, if you will, and spec creative that I, I hate to say it. Sometimes people will say, I love their creative, but I want this other agency oh, to man. be the one. And so yeah. that's that's kind of a shit storm and a nightmare when you have but you go into the RFP, and sometimes they'll say any product that you develop on our behalf becomes ours. But in some cases, it's like, but you haven't remunerated it for us until you pay us for that. It's ours.
0: Yeah, yeah and yeah.
1: Um, so there there are still some bad examples of RFPs out there. But I can safely say, Lance, that the majority of would be clients are at least not asking us as much now for spec creative. It's much more of a capes review. What are your capabilities? What are your superpowers and secret sauce? Then let's do kind of, they want to see how we think. They want to see what we might come up with, where we might take a campaign idea around this or that, but it's not necessarily full blown out storyboards, et cetera. It's more a taste of the creativity, the process, and maybe most importantly, what's the esprit de corps? What's the vibe you get? Um, still probably two-thirds are, are Zoom and Google Meets oriented, and this one or two that I've just mentioned, we now just got to the in-person phase. We've gotten oh, cool. the hurdles, and the one that we had earlier this week if we select you, tell us what this relationship will look like. Tell us what a meeting looks like. Tell us what tools and technologies you use to facilitate project management. So we're getting pretty molecular yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. But that's typically a good sign. Uh, clients often don't want to know about the process of working with you. But when they start asking that detail, you must have already satisfied their needs for creativity, collaboration.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Wow. <laughs> and so for most of the uh, the business development, the kind of finishing the proposal, is that going to be an in-person with you and your business partner that you guys fly over? You know, you say, Hey, we got a client in Cincinnati, we got a client in Boston. So a lot of air travel for you all for the and client uh, meetings, is it in person? Um, for our
1: for in, in you know if, if if to close the sale and become their aor or win a large project if that requires us to fly in person matt and i will go by ourselves or we'll bring ser- several leadership team members so that they realize there's a really super talented team behind them with great discipline and great skills so we don't hesitate to invest in that when That's we cool, feel man. like we got a better than 50 percent probability of closing this deal um fortunately, I think everyone during COVID just became so much more comfortable with virtual meetings and, and things like that. Even for some of our current, our biggest clients, um, they're even when they're in the office working, they don't ask us to necessarily be with yeah. them. They're very content continuing on Zoom. And so, to be honest, that helps us keep our value equation even better. I know. And I I remember when I was CEO at Dial, crap, our agency coming in from Chicago two or three times in a single week Yeah, um, or members of their team coming in, it it just became, and I thought of it as free. No, of course that they're having billbacks and markups. And so every one of those trips, wasn't free yeah
0: that's true i i really i think it's a neat thing to see the whole shift though covid obviously wasn't a good thing but there i think out of every trial we bring something good out of it too and yes. uh and i feel like the the just cost savings right It may be bad if you're an airline but really good for a at times where we used to think like oh i want to see that person in person right i want yes. them to sit across from me and we talk about it yes but the cost three grand to get them there when you, you know, you add everything in and you go, wow, what's that really worth? Was that the best place for that value? And it's not a big deal for one trip, but for 15 a week, you go, whoa, this is, this is really adding up.
1: Yeah. Um, No, I completely, not only the, the dollars, but just also the time and inefficiencies of going through TSAs and sitting in lounges and, Oh, there's the thunderstorm over Dallas. It looks like we're going to be here for two hours a lot of lost productivity. I do feel like COVID has told us and helped us reframe how we spend our workday. And I don't, I'm not working shorter hours now. I think I'm working better
0: hours. Mm, Yeah, I I would agree because switching costs are high, right? Every time you change locations, there's a switching cost to it. So excellent point. Man, that's neat. So you guys go through, thanks for educating me and all sure. the listeners that aren't as familiar with this process. Um, when you So you move in, you you win a client account, right? Man, right. We'll just assume that you're the agency of record and it wasn't yep. a project. Then what does is, what is that working relationship look like? We just covered not all the meetings are in person, yep. but right. you, know, you, you try to get some wins for them quickly. Um, yeah. How, how do you deal with delivering a great client experience from day one and help them feel like they're getting value quickly rather than... Right. You know, um, good question, Lance. I think one of the things, even though
1: probably to win the piece of business, we've already done one or more discovery sessions to better understand what their business problems are, what are the challenges that they're trying to overcome. and, And we've already probably impressed them with one or more of our solutions. But we don't take for granted that everything we may have learned during an RFP process or a dating process is still their top priority today. So Mm. once we've got that contract and that marketing services agreement signed, we go right back into another discovery. Let's make sure that we really understand that the priorities that you may have articulated eight or 10 weeks ago are still the priorities today, because I want to make sure that if we uh, now in that first 30 or 45 days, consciously we're thinking, how do we get a couple wins on the board? What would a win look like? We may not ask that question to our client, what does a win look like in the first 30 or 40 days? Also, sometimes I do. I just want to anticipate this is going to be one of those uh, surprise and delight moments that they're not going to expect us to come back in 30 days with this done and we're going to blow their shorts off. And, And so... That's, we we try to find, even if it's just a few small wins, because we think that they're, if they've had an experience with a large agency in the past, chances are they haven't gotten to first base and we're already rounding second and heading to third. So that's kind of a philosophy.
0: A small win, would that be like, hey, we've got, uh, we brought up this problem in discovery. We just went through this and here's um, here's some initial ideas on the strategy we could take. Or what does a small win look like for a lot of your clients?
1: And it could take, uh, most often it would probably be, um, let me give you a couple examples. Um, a, a, new, a new client came in about two or three weeks ago. He said, I think I need some brand identity work. I think I want a new website. I'm going to reposition my company in this real estate sector from A to B. So we do some discovery. Um, Next week, he's not exactly sure what he's going to get. But on Wednesday, we're going to sit down and we will have written. uh, So it'll be less than four weeks from our initial discovery. He's probably expecting a few things like a direction we may take on brand identity. We're going to hit him with a new purpose, vision, mission, core values, brand positioning, brand essence, taglines, and a manifesto overview of what his brand could look like in the public domain When after we do his website refresh and his brand identity. So we're already going to hit him with, holy shit, this is a really integrated thing. I didn't know I was running a company that great, but I love that company that you just described and I aspire to live up to that. And so that's the, those are the magical moments that not only get a, a relationship off on a really good first step, but then secondarily lead to, well, do you, you know, I know our original scope of work is here. What about if we did this? Oh yeah, we can do that too. And so I really feel then the organic growth opportunities fall right behind it because we've over-delivered on initial expectations. Um, that being a a very tangible example of something that's a work in process, but we try to do that, um, in some cases here's a, here's a, a perfect example. One of our, our clients is a publicly traded financial institution and bank in Texas. They hired us in our first month as an agency in October of 2020. We did some great work. They brought in a new CMO. And after about six months of working, that CMO um, didn't feel like she needed an agency of our, not so much our caliber, but our type of agency. She was going much more lower funnel stuff and really wasn't interested in the brand awareness, brand affinity, and some of the upper funnel stuff. Well, she gets replaced after a year, and the new marketing team comes in and says, Jesus, we see some work that you guys did. It looks like it's on the shelf. It never got deployed. Would you like to work with us? And we really apologize for our predecessors, and we go, yeah. So we had a meeting yesterday where we took a campaign idea that has literally been sitting on the shelf waiting for – somebody to breathe new oxygen into it and we come back and you know i I think we've got some opportunities for for improvement but for us to be able to in less than two weeks bring them three or four fully fleshed out 360 degree advertising and marketing ideas i think is more than what they would
0: have normally expected That's what I was thinking of is like the, you know, violating expectations in the best way possible, right? Because I love that expression. It it feels like there's, when I hear you talk about some of these things, I go, yeah, in four weeks, I think you'd get a general strategic direction. Maybe you'd have, maybe you'd have a a broad overview of, you know, where it could go in the next six months or something, but you've got some of the things done in four weeks that I, I just can't imagine people wouldn't be surprised. Right. And in in the best way possible. So that it seems like a classic over delivery. And I wonder if your client experience plays into this in a little bit of a way of like, hey, this is what would delight me. Right. I don't want to have to have, I don't want to. If you know what you want to do, can you just do it? And then we can, we can edit that rather than waiting around for the additional time. And sometimes it it feels like we can all struggle with it, but it's a what's the minimum I can deliver? Right. Or what's, what's the minimum I need to deliver to keep them happy? And and that's, I get it, right? Everybody's got a business to run. There's a lot of pressures, but it seems like you guys have flipped it and said, all right, what can we get done in this time rather than what's the minimum we have to get done in order not to lose them as a client?
1: That's a really, really well said. Um, when I was at the other agency, I coined the term rapid response, not direct response, but rapid response. But I realized that they're not just, clients don't just ask an agency to respond quickly. Ultimately they want results. Yeah. So Matt and I have coined the term a rapid results agency mm. and a result means an outcome uh, and it may be in the market or it is an outcome that they now can do something with that will drive growth and demand and things like that. So. That uh, is a non-trademarked uh, colloquial expression of ours, but we think of ourselves as a rapid results agency, and it's serving us
0: really well. And I imagine it bubbles up for the team too, right? Where they they get the feeling for it. I think there's, uh, we've all been in, on teams or in organizations where you say, okay, we've got too much to do, so we need to triage, right? This is a triage yes. kind of situation, and it's a different thing to say. No, no, we, we know we've got the capability, we've got the capacity, and we're going to do it quickly. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. Well, so shifting gears a little bit, that's really cool to hear about how you go from RFP to uh, all the way up through, I think the first 90 days I heard, it, or first 100 yes. days are just so critical for any new customer, new client, yep. new relationship, whatever. Um, and if you, you guys have a lot figured out. And I always like to hear what, what the next thing you're trying to figure out is, right? There's always twenty things, but right now what's what's the next thing you're trying to figure out? What's the next constraint?
1: Well, that's a really, really good question. And I haven't been asked that in a while. I would say um, you know, we've been content with our core group of, you know, around fifteen full time employees. Because of our relationships in previous agencies and Matt even more agencies prior to the time we work together. Um, We bring in what I'll think of it as like a concentric set of circles. And the next ring is a few art directors, copywriters, production specialists who we've worked with in the past, who are now either moonlighting or freelancing. And and so that makes our team play at a bigger level. Having won about four accounts in the third quarter and possibly four more in the month of October, the biggest challenge when I think most agencies would say the biggest war right now is the war for talent. Um, mm. I think it's really, really difficult to predict client demand because client demand yeah. is not linear yeah. itself. And so how do we make sure we can deliver that passion, that enthusiasm, and that speed without also burdening our balance sheet and our PL with yeah. too much headcount, that oh no, client A decided to slow down, B has moved it to November, client C moved it to January, and that always happens. Yeah. And really. and I think we've I think the thing we're struggling with right now, but I think we're like most agencies, we're finding a way to make it work, is that uneven level of demand and crunch times. And so our client service and project managers, as they look into their crystal ball and they begin to say, God, and this happened, you know, four to six weeks ago when we were doing a lot of different commercial production. We had a big event activation going on in Long Beach. Our our account team was looking and project management team is looking at our hours allocations and they said, we are running super hot. Um, 60, we're going to be running at 60 or 70 hours a week, uh, in art directors and copywriters. We've got to find some ways to diffuse some of this. And that's when we bring in some of these, you know, other colleagues. Um, they've done a really good job of anticipating those issues before they become chronic. So we can get somebody to start offloading something to and transition. One of our uber talented art directors. And, and uh, just before she left for Europe, a two week vacation in Europe, nice. it's like, Oh crap. <laughs> but, you know, we've got a line of, we've got other great people standing ready to step up. And I think probably the most, the thing that gives Matt and I the most pride about heart and soul is the level of accountability and account of amount of passion, whether they be entry level employees or, you know, people with two to three years agency experience, we've got folks, um, they, they, they just don't quit. They just keep going and going. They feel this enormous sense of responsibility to do a job and do, do a job well. Um, and, and that just makes us so proud. We don't force them to do it, but they want to do it because at an individual level and at a corporate level, um, they want to make sure
0: that we're moving forward. I've always thought of this as one of the the real strengths of a small company as well, right? Because yeah. there's just a, a clearer line of sight for an entry level employee to the impact they're having, and I, I'm sure you've experienced it sometime in your career where you go, totally. "Wow, I just I just busted my hump. I worked really hard. I think the idea was great, and it and it got it just sat on a shelf. It wasn't even that it got killed or somebody didn't like it right. or it didn't get used, right? And yes. I think the converse being wow, the work I'm doing now is going to be out there, right? And and that seems, at least for folks that we've worked with, it just seems like it can be so much more uh, impactful when they they get to see that the client really used this, the client really appreciated it. They, and I imagine at heart and soul, it's just since you guys are at a time where everybody is crucial, yes. they get to see really quickly the impact they're having. And a lot of creatives want to create and they want to have their right. their work used, right?
1: No, you're, you're spot on, Lance. Uh, we do, did our first all-employee survey, uh, fielded it in July, got the results back uh, end of July, first week of August, tried to pull it apart and synthesize it, looking at verbatims, looking at the, and everything, of course, was an, uh, anonymous. So people had that code of confidence and secrecy that they yep. could say anything, negative or positive. Then we took all employees through it in an offsite meeting so that they would not only see what they and their colleagues said, but we identified those very things. And the strengths, of course, was access to the founders, um, our our speed of decision making. And I think one of the telltale signs, and this is true, and, and I can go back to companies that were hundreds, if not thousands of employees, if an employee doesn't feel First of all, as we know, most people quit their company because they quit their relationship with their boss. It probably has less to do with financial remuneration and more to do with relationships. So we, the first test is: Do people feel valued? Do they feel like the work that they're doing is making a difference? Is it making the company more successful? In addition to growing them individually, and when you get ninety and ninety-five percent agreement and acceptance on that, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, the, the researcher who kind of took us through these, and I'd never used a survey quite like this. Your scores could go from a minus 100 all the way up to a positive oh. 100.
0: Yeah, I've only seen zero to 100. And when
1: she showed us that you guys have nothing under 30, don't think of it as a 30 on a zero to 100 scale. Think of it as a minus 100, 30 to 50 is average. Anything above 50 is excelling, and all of our scores were in that 60, 70, 80. And, and, of course, the ones that made us feel best were those in the 90 or 100. We have a few 100s. Wow. But it was, again, when, you, when we named it Heart and Soul, we, we said, we are going to be a very culturally driven company. We, and we're not going to just have four or five core values. We have a cultural contract that everybody signs before employment, oh, and wow. the cultural contract outlines 20 different behaviors and attitudes that is expected of an employee from heart and soul. Some of those are how we treat ourselves, and most of them are, are, are of course, externally focused and how we treat our clients. Um, you know, one of the ones that, uh, that I wrote that I, I feel really good about we say we are energy providers. Mm. Um, we've all been in companies, large and small, where there's that person who sits in the room, is the naysayer, they're backstabbing, they may be saying one thing in the meeting and then outside the meeting, oh, she's a this and he's a that and that's a yeah. stupid idea. Those are the people that drain energies from organizations. Yeah, they're, sometimes they're provocateurs, but a lot of time they're saboteur. So. Um, the cultural contract means a lot. And I think we've been able to create a culture where people want to work there because they know, yes, we're small, but they're not sacrificing anything. They're actually gaining something from this environment.
0: Yeah. I, I resonate with that so much where we have a thing where it's like, we want to bring our whole self to work. Right. And it's cliche and it's, it's been said many times, but I just think, well, who are you? Right. We got a variety of different people i come from a christian background and i really Mm -hmm. like math some people are artists that come from a muslim background or jewish or no faith at all it's so exciting though to say hey we can bring our whole selves to work and do something together Um, yes so yeah the cultural contract though i think i'm gonna i'm gonna have to noodle on that one because that's that's even i feel like it's a good advanced screening tool for some of those folks and yes. and a good commitment once we're there because it, contracts are hard to keep and not not just for the employees, but for me as a founder or for you as a founder sometimes you go, am I living up to what I asked them to live up to right and and
1: that is exactly why we did it and this survey shined a light that by and large, I think Matt and I are doing a pretty good job of of living that and expecting our people to live that contract. But every Monday morning when we do a zoom, um, all employee gathering, you know, Matt goes through a different cultural value, and then now and again, based on the feedback, we're celebrating not with rewards, but just giving emotional gratification to people who have demonstrated that value at work this week. And so, we've created a, a screen share where it's the kudos wall behind you, oh, that's and you can good. type in there. Kudos to Brody for doing this, et cetera, et cetera. So who doesn't want to see their peers uh, respect their effort and their attitude? And uh, and so we try to make this cultural contract not just a bulletin board type of material that you used to see when you walk into a company. Um, It's not a screensaver. It's the way we work. And every week we do something to honor it.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's exciting. Taking away a lot of notes here. like, oh gosh, these are real practical cultural development things. So Good. Well, Brad, my, my closing question is always a little light and it's a, just a simple one, but what, you know, what um, do you go to, to learn these days? Right. Are you a, I, I have a YouTuber I follow. I like certain books. I like certain authors. What if you're going to leave um, the audience with one resource or yeah. one provider of resources, some thought leader then. What would it be?
1: You know, I don't know if I should be proud of this or not, but <laughs> I don't read a lot of books. I don't feel like That's I fair. have the time and the attention to read a book cover to cover, even though I get a lot, some of them sent to me and autographed and things like that. What I really find myself being is. Obviously, I grew up in marketing and advertising at a time when television was dominant. And now almost everything but television is dominant or growing and interesting. So I read a lot of articles, industry association articles from the 4As or ANA. I, I subscribe to something called Smart Brief, which is free and Smart Brief, when you log on, they have a hundred different newsletters, and you pick the frequency, and it could be about this industry vertical or about use of TikTok or whatever. I get a dozen of these per day, and wow. so what I find myself doing—some of them are redundant. So I see the headlines about McDonald's is doing this and Burger King is doing that, et cetera. But I try to immerse myself in other industry stuff. So I've got my, I feel like a lighthouse and my beacon is just going around back and forth. Um, so it tends to be short content reads. And then of course, if I find something I love, uh, I share it out either with all employees or, or different departments of the agency. Uh, because, you know, one of the things we realize again, leads to brand and corporate loyalty and be, good corporate citizens is making sure our employees are learning too. So it's maybe providing them formalized training, but these articles are often fall into the informal learning. And sometimes that's the most valuable of all. And so that's what I do to try to stay sharp. I don't know if it's enough for some people, but it's worked for me.
0: You're not alone. Actually. It's, it's a lot of times we'll talk to agency owners. And I think there's this, um, it's kind of like admitting that you eat at McDonald's or that you watch TV or admitting that you don't read a lot of books. Some people go, "Oh man, I'm the worst person in the world. I don't actually learn." Yeah. But but it, that's actually the beauty of the question is, I think a lot of people have diverse sources. And yeah. and what you're trying you know what you're trying to get at is, "Hey, what works for me to learn?" And I think I I I'm going to check out those newsletters and I'm sure that it'll help somebody else who's listening to the show. So thanks for an off the beaten path cuz it takes sure. some courage to say, "Yeah, I know this is the right answer culturally, but here's what I actually do, and here's what's helped me. Right. So, Brad, if people wanted to learn more about Heart and Soul, then um, where should they go? How could they, you know, maybe they're looking for an employment opportunity, maybe they're looking for um, an agency of record or whatever. How right. would they find you all? Um,
1: well, our, our website, uh, our, our company name is is Heart and Soul, but our website is gotheartandsoul.com. And um, they can also just, email me at brad, at heart, dot com. So heartandsoulmarketing.com. And, And, you know, we're not just a a typical advertising agency. We're willing to do projects as well as AOR relationships. And as I alluded to earlier, we think we have a real affinity and a real insight uh, on what we call challenger brands. Um, maybe it's because at P and G I had all leadership brands and number one market shares. And when I went to church and Dwight and later to dial, I found out what it's like not to be the market leader <laughs> and how to compete against those. And so we pride ourselves in attracting clients that don't always have the biggest budgets, but that doesn't mean they don't have, want big ideas. It doesn't mean that they don't want disruption um uh, sometimes challenger is more a mindset than a market share uh, position mm. and and there are perfect examples of age or, or excuse me clients that maybe by definition are a top 1 2 leadership brand but their minds are aggressive i won't say insecure but they'll they'll act like challengers because they don't want to take the status quo for granted yeah. And that's where an agency like ours will help keep them, I think, sharp and focused.
0: Yeah, I think that deep humility of any brand is going to be well served, right? Because it, it's, it things change very quickly. Le- yes. Brands that were leaders five years ago, 10 years ago, they might not be leaders today, right? And so I feel like the option is to stay humble and stay a challenger brand or become a challenger brand because right. somebody else's humble did it. Well, Brad, so great to have you on the show. Learned a whole lot. And uh, yeah, it was wonderful to hear your story. So thanks for coming on.
1: I really appreciate it, Lance. Thank you very much. Thanks for what you're doing. And and this was one of the most fun podcasts I've done in a year.
0: Oh, glad to hear it.
1: All right. All the best. Thank you. Take care.